the body in this practice. Uh, one main problem for all human beings, but I'll be talking about it from the perspective of vipassana, vipassana yogis, and the practice that goes along with that. It has to do with coming to terms with the body. It's a very difficult challenge, how to come to terms with the body. And everyone faces it. It has a particular twist in spiritual circles and in this uh, approach in particular. One characteristic of our relationship to the body, for most of us, is tremendous attachment. And that manifests either as the expression, I am the body, a kind of an identity with it. So that whatever happens to the body, whatever is thought about the body, however we perceive other people seeing the body, it's as if it's us. There's no separation. I am this body, a very strong identification with it, and a corresponding fate, psychological fate, based on how we respond to that. Or sometimes a little bit less concentrated would be the body as a possession. This is my body, this is my arm, my leg, my hair, my eyes. And it could be both positive or negative. Could be what is sometimes called narcissism narcissism and vanity. Uh, Tremendous amount of energy put into cleansing the body, decorating it, dressing it, keeping it well, displaying it. And it can go to the other extreme, which is equally an attachment, uh, not liking our body, seeing it as uh, not attractive, as too old or too short or too tall or too heavy or the wrong color or the wrong shape. And both from the point of view of uh, what we'll be developing this morning. And I think it'll take a while. I, I sense that, uh, uh, of course, coming to terms with the body will take a while, it'll take our whole life. But I mean, just a few words about it, I think will take more than this morning. So it may spill over into another talk. Um, perhaps it begins early, now allowing for aspects of this that are out of our control or beyond our control, whether it be through genetics or karma or whatever language uh, you approve of or have faith in, believe in. Uh, Very early in life, the child is greeted by the adult world and the, the child's body is responded to, looked at a certain way. Certain things are said about it. We, start, we look into adults' eyes and we start to find out what kind of a body we have. And then we start to look into our friends' eyes. They start telling us what kind of a body we have. And it's very strong in an athletic body or it's not strong enough or something that we should do to remedy it, how attractive it is, how unattractive it is. There's really a lot of time and energy spent on characterizing the body. Magazines and newspapers are 
filled up, as you know, with ideal bodies, most of which none of us have. Fortunately, I guess a few people have, the people in the photographs. I'm not even sure about them. And so, to begin with, there is a a strong uh, relationship to the body which grows and becomes increasingly more complicated as we grow older. Maybe it reaches its peak when we're adolescents, peak of insanity or real problematic aspect. But then it starts to become a problem again for many of us as we get older, as the body starts to show signs of decay, aging, graying, uh, loss of muscle tone, and all the implications of that. So implied in coming to terms with the body is, uh, as you can see, an enormous amount. It has to do with our relationships to people. It has to do with life and death. It has to do with attractiveness, feelings of being loved, our own sense of uh, worth for our, towards ourselves. And a, a lot of it, of course, is learned from our early experience and then very often carried for the rest of life and with different consequences. A central sutra teaching in, uh, for uh, people interested in this kind of meditation is the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, which is, a, in a sense, a yogic manual on arousing mindfulness. It's the practice that we're doing in a very concise way. It's presented a very thorough uh, yogic manual with many different angles and techniques or contemplations to help arouse mindfulness, to help arouse awareness, to bring it to life. And in that teaching, uh, an important part of that teaching is the body. One-fourth, one in other words, there are four major contemplations, and one of them, one whole one, is the contemplation of the body. And one of the things that is uh, approached in this uh, extraordinary teaching, to me it is, it's the is what has got, got me and kept me in this practice, is that particular teaching and the practice of it, the doing of it. In regard to the body and, of course, everything else that follows, which basically it's the body and mind, has to do with coming to terms with the body in the sense of uh, perhaps seeing that really you are not the body, nor can you say, uh, this is my body. In other words, the, the first uh, is the identification. I am my body. And the other is the body as a possession. And the many variations on that, different degrees of intensity. And what is suggested is simply that the, there is a body. There's a statement of uh, fact that here is this body. And what is suggested is the rest is not only extra, but causes an enormous amount of suffering. And in that particular section, uh, there are a variety of ways to encourage us to look at the body, to examine it carefully, and particularly to see things like impermanence in a very, not just a poetic or a scan, but in a very detailed, systematic, careful, thorough way. One of the characteristics of mindfulness is thoroughness. 
It has to do with non-superficiality in, our, in all endeavors in life. That's what we're developing. When you start to develop mindfulness or awareness or attention, what you're also developing is thoroughness and moving away from perhaps a more superficial way of relating to the objects that compose our life. And so, regarding the body, there's an acknowledgement of tremendous attachment to the body as if it is permanent, as if it is us, and as if it belongs to us. And what is suggested is none of those are really accurate. And a number of the contemplations to, to weaken this attachment to the body, a number of contemplations point out the limitations of the body. For example, that it is impermanent. Whether you could start with the breath. One of the contemplations, in fact, the practice that we're doing, which is so uh, uh, centrally linked to, the, to breathing, comes out of this teaching. And as you begin to observe the breath, as you've all been doing for a number of days now, the in-breath and the out-breath, and you start to see perhaps differences between the in-breath and the out-breath, differences in length. As you start to observe the breath, what is suggested is one thing that uh, you can begin to see is that each breath is impermanent. So this message of impermanence, which is central to, to Buddha Dharma, to this teaching, which comes up all the time and with tremendously profound implications, so it's sort of a root contemplation. Many other contemplations seem to be a derivative of it. If you notice an in-breath, it has a distinct beginning and it has a distinct ending. Whether you notice it at the nostrils or whether you're feeling it at the abdomen or around the chest. In other words, as you start to examine the behavior of the sensations that we use the word breathing for, you'll see that the process, that an inhalation has a beginning and an end, that an exhalation has a beginning and an end. In fact, as the mind becomes very quiet, you'll see that an inhalation is made up of a lot of different sensations. It's not one smooth, uninterrupted one, all of which arise and pass away at a, a staggering rate. So even if you just limited your attention to the breath, uh, you, would, you would begin to learn about this. You begin to learn about the truth of impermanence. That no breath lasts. That it arises and that it passes away. Passes away. Now, you, uh, it is often, uh, we're often reminded of this in all the readings that we do and all the teachings because you could just see it. And at first, I think some hint and some encouragement is needed to give us a slight angle of perception, to begin to notice this so that you can grasp the consequences, the implications, the deeper implications of this. The breath is impermanent, but the breath is not special. Everything is impermanent. So this is just one door into learning that. It's one way to learn that. And so you see that. You begin to see that with increasing intensity as your mind becomes more quiet and more sensitive. Also, perhaps sometimes you experience the breath is somewhat blocked. You know, a lot of the exercises that you're uh, working on with Vimalo have to do with that. There's a lot of blockage, distortion, discomfort in the breathing. When we look closely, we can see it. We, we can really feel it. 
And this gets at another truth that the Buddha put forward as central, the truth of unsatisfactoriness or suffering or limitation in life. There's a lot of it. It's what is being suggested. And also, uh, other teachings are all in this breath, a teaching that uh, everything is conditioned. You start to see that the quality of the breath, the length of it, the smoothness, the evenness of it, the refinement or coarseness of it may have to do with the health of other organs. It may have to do with how much you've eaten. It may have to do with your mood. And correspondingly, the breath affects the health of the whole body. So that everything is uh, an arising that's dependent on everything else. It's all interrelated. And you may begin to see that there's no agent. In a sense, there's no breather. There's this impersonal process, a natural process, a lawful natural process of breaths emerging, of operating for a period of time, and then vanishing. And that, for those of you who have been reading some of this, uh, is pointing more towards what the Buddha mentioned when he talked about no-self or anatta. That there isn't an abiding entity that's regulating all of this. That's doing the breathing. There's just breathing is happening. Okay. Now, in the particular reflection, let's say on the breath, uh, part of the encouragement to see the impermanence of the breath is to see the impermanence of life. It's not limited to the breath. It's just one convenient, uh, vivid way to grasp this obvious truth. And one of the main purposes of grasping that truth is to work on attachment. In other words, if, it, if you really are convinced that everything is in a state of process, everything is arising and passing away in flux, everything is moving, everything is changing, it has a certain undependable quality to it. You don't know how long anything is going to last, but you can be assured of the fact that it won't last. It will become something else. Despite this truth, we get very attached to things, all kinds of things, as you know, and we suffer tremendously. We crave for them and we hold on to them for dear life, and in spite of that, this law just rolls on. It doesn't care. At whatever level of creation you want to look at, you'll see it in effect. And no matter how many times it happens, and this teaching is going on 24 hours a day, the universe is just tireless, never takes a vacation. On and on, continuously teaching the impermanence of everything. And despite that, we often behave as if it's not so, as if everything is permanent, and the things we like, we want to hold on to them, of course. But they're taken from us. Whether, you, whether the unit of a time is a moment or much longer. Okay, I, I know you know all of this. It's central to the Buddhist teaching then to grasp the significance, the consequences of this, these facts, the fact that everything is changing and that we, despite this, form these attachments which are as if things are not changing. And so one of the main lessons to be learned from this contemplation is to see that this body is constantly changing, and ultimately its change becomes death. The body decomposes, and is no longer recognizable. It becomes 
a different form, the elements uh, take a different shape, no shape. And so we're taught to recognize this, uh, and in the recognition, we can see if something is impermanent, then it's not to be grasped at. That's a, a, a cardinal lesson to be learned. If we can begin to see that this law is really a law, but it's not, it won't help if it's just cerebral. That is, we have to really assimilate this truth, that this impermanence, these arisings and passings away, have to be mixed in with our mind enough times, have to be chewed and digested and assimilated, so that finally we get it, because we're a little bit obtuse here. Because our interest in having things the way we want them to be is so enormous that it's very difficult to honor this law, even though it's unrelenting in its teaching. And so by, uh, and I think this is one of the points of genius in the, the Buddha's teaching, Everyone knows about impermanence. There isn't a civilization that's been around that hasn't philosophized about it, written poetry about it, history about it, etc. But what is being done here, what you're all doing, or what you can begin to do if you haven't been doing it, is you can test this law on your own body and begin to see, and I would approach it with that kind of innocence. Is it really so that everything is impermanent? And you can start with the breath, and perhaps today we'll be moving to other aspects of the body, like eating, food. And as we observe that enough times, and as the mind becomes increasingly more sensitive, so that the fact registers, that has a certain impact, we begin to see that indeed everything is changing constantly. And perhaps this begins to weaken and to undermine this capacity for grasping, holding on, and suffering. So there are a number of contemplations that have this purpose in this extremely important uh, teaching, this sutra that I've referred to. Others, which we'll go into in a little more detail, uh, perhaps uh, in a few days, have to do with seeing the body as foul. In other words, seeing, uh, if you can, okay, this might be the best way to convey this one. If, a number of years ago, almost 10 to be exact, um, I came to this center um, after I had just seen a film on the body, having nothing to do with meditation. It was a, perhaps many of you have seen some of these films that are now possible with the modern photography. Uh, extraordinary film of the workings of the body, particular organs, embryo, all kinds of things are possible with uh, modern photography. and. I just saw a very powerful one uh, of various aspects of the functioning of the body, uh, beautifully done, the photography being incredible. It was like a, a mystical experience, the wonder of life. That's what was conveyed, and it was pretty difficult not to experience that. And of course, at the same time that that was going on, uh, in Cambridge, and this had been going on for a while before that, the uh, the beginnings of whole health, the whole health movement, the new age, with all the emphasis on uh, taking care of the body, and uh, the emphasis on all kinds of new uh, therapies and healing modalities to make a caricature of it, which it has now become. I mean, I think it's become a caricature. If you live in Cambridge, uh, it's what I think you can call being interfaced. I don't know if that means anything to you. And Interface is a great place, but 
What it means is somehow we're not complete as humans until we get Ralph, Feldenkrais, acupunctured, acupressured. Uh, there are a whole bunch of others. Alexandered, Swedish massage, California massage, Tibetan massage. And, you know, there are many, many more. And a healthy, all of these things are good. And a healthy movement towards uh, uh, questioning our diet, perhaps fasting from time to time, questioning water, the kinds of water that we drink, the use of food supplements. And so all of this was going on. Uh, it was reaching a crescendo point, in other words, about the body. And many of us who had come out of another generation where the body was neglected or, or kind of puritanical view of the body as something dirty or, or else just for sex or just for sports, and not much consciousness about how to care for the body or its relationship to mental states or the relationship of food to health, very little of that. And so that was an exciting period. And then I wound up here, and there was a teacher from, a teaching from Asia, actually it was one of the Buddha's contemplations, on the foulness of the body. It was quite a contrast. And the, the immense resistance that I experienced. And not only myself, it was an incredible evening. People started leaving this hall like rats leaving a sinking ship. <laughs> no one wanted to hear this, about that this is a sack of mucus and pus and feces <laughs> and phlegm oozing out of each orifice. And, uh, you know, that beautiful woman or man that you have this incredible fantasy about, it's just like a sack of sesame seeds, you know, you just puncture it and it starts oozing out and <laughs> it kind of puts an end, it puts Hollywood out of business <laughs> and all the magazines, out, most of the magazines out of business. And it really clashed with what we were all doing. And of course we were not, I would, certainly I was not, uh, there was aware of that, aware of the tremendous attachment that we had been developing about the body. And it was really part of what you might call self-improvement rather than liberation. Not to say that self-improvement is irrelevant, but it's a very different emphasis than what, let's say, a wisdom approaches are about. Some self-improvement seems necessary to even be within range of going beyond, so that a lot of remedial work may be needed by all of us. But uh, the obsession with it, and sometimes it was called spiritual, but really it wasn't. It was just the, pol the polar opposite of what went before it. Complete neglect or indifference to the body, certain kinds of attachment, negative attachments. Many people didn't like their bodies. And then there were workshops to come in contact with the body to, uh, to heal that. And meeting this teaching, which was designed to loosen that attachment, uh, was hateful. I mean, it was just incredibly negative. And it took me, personally, a number of years uh, I blocked it out. It was as if, well, the Buddha didn't say that. Someone else must have put that in the book, or maybe they made that up in modern Burma. But then the more I read, I started to reading this. It, it was said, it was in this original teaching. There's no question about it. So how to come to terms with the body? And in my own case, I've spent some time trying to find a proper balance, because that also can become an imbalance. In fact, my own view is that it, it did and does. What I find, I use the present tense because I feel it's still true. In, uh, in Vipassana circles, or really in Buddhist circles more generally, there is a, 
quite a bit of sophistication and emphasis about the fact that this body will die and that it is not I or mine and me. And you've heard, you've heard these phrases. Uh, and a lot of work on letting go of certain kinds of vanity with the body, and in some cases, really letting go of all of it. And in, in that sense, a very wonderful um, relationship to the body. But somehow, and often through techniques like this, contemplating death, contemplating foulness, contemplating impermanence, there's a, a subtle byproduct of it, which is the neglect of the body in its own terms. And the result is, people get sick more than they need to. And you have a paradox where people can put in uh, thousands of hours on the cushion observing their body and know a great deal about its impermanence and its perishability and have let go a lot of the vanity of it. And maybe in some cases totally, I don't know, but clearly a lot. And yet, uh, after all of that work of awareness, remember, because that's what we do, uh, very little uh, bodily know-how, very little understanding of just, in a simple way, I'm not talking about becoming a professional or becoming a hatha yogi or anything of that sort, just very little uh, sensitivity and just a modicum understanding of how to uh, care for the body, how to exercise it, what kind of, uh, uh, so it gets enough, uh, the, the breathing is cared for, food, exercise, sleep, water, just Basics. Now, why care about that? Is that spiritual or is that just mundane? Try neglecting it, at least if you neglect it a lot, which I'm maintaining does happen among meditators quite a bit, particularly if you become preoccupied with the mind. And what happens is there are a lot of problems with low energy. There are a lot of problems with the body breaking down more than it needs to. Now, uh, this is a, 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 well, everything I'm saying, I suppose, is a big, fat opinion, but here comes a, 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 a bigger and a fatter one. My own uh, sense is that this is not what the Buddha had in mind, or is to become so uh, absorbed with the limitations of the body that we neglect just a, uh, an adequate level of attention to it, uh, a caring for it, so that the body can function in a healthy way, spiritually, so that our dharma practice has the requisite energy that's needed, because as you are finding out, it's quite hard work, isn't it? It's very demanding to get up early in the morning and to, to do this stuff. And it's helpful if the body is, it's a little easier if the body is healthy than if it's sick. It's a little easier if you have more energy than if you have less energy. And the kinds of the ways in which we work with the body, the way we feed the body, etc., have real consequences in terms of clarity, in terms of energy, and so forth. My feeling is that, first of all, in the same sutra, where the emphasis is on impermanence and on the foulness of the body and on death, death awareness, to cultivate a healthy understanding of what the body really is. There's also, in a section on clear comprehension, this is also on the body, uh, what is suggested is to, be, to use awareness, to develop awareness, so that uh, we can have beneficial goals that are beneficial, uh, 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 suitable goals, and 
uh, uh, suitable means to attain these goals. So, that, for example, people all the time say, talk about things that they would like to accomplish in their life, from very ordinary things to spiritual things, but then don't live their life in such a way that this can lead to what it is that people say they value. It could be in business. It could be just the way we organize our daily events. And there's no question that it, it, it is in terms of how we practice. So we may have all kinds of very beautiful goals, and yet we're not living in any way in which those goals can be reached. We want to go to New York, but we get on a bus heading for Toledo, Ohio. And we keep saying how we can't wait till we get to New York, and how wonderful New York is, and we have guidebooks of New York, and photographs of New York, and the history of New York. Everybody off, Toledo, Ohio. It may seem ridiculous, but in small ways, that's, that is what we're doing. Okay, so there's, there's one commentary which talks about this clear comprehension of purpose, which includes in it suitability, and the range, the beauty of it is that it ranged from the most ordinary things to the most extraordinary things, the same issue of aligning goals and how you're doing it. Are you really uh, living in such a way so that you can accomplish what it is you say you want to accomplish? And they talk, in one of these commentaries, it talks about uh, if a monk is very old, then he should probably should not have a steel bowl, but should have a wooden bowl. In other words, he should be lighter, so he doesn't have to carry it. Do you see the level at which this uh, concept is useful? And it does refer to food. So that clear comprehension uh, of purpose and suitability when uh, addressed to food, that is, you're addressing awareness to eating, and then the question becomes, what are we eating, and how does that affect the, uh, the health of the body and the quality of the mind? I sense that uh, in the time of the Buddha, based on uh, the little that I can know from what's available, uh, many of the programs that we have today uh, were not necessary because they were already doing it. In other words, food was not polluted, the air was good, water was good, people were walking a great deal, uh, the Buddha over and over emphasizes moderation in eating, and clearly uh, the rules for at least the monks uh, encourage that. And so uh, what you might have had at that time was just a very naturally healthy lifestyle, so that maybe people quite naturally didn't need organic uh, movements or natural health movements or health food stores or uh, food supplements because it was just, uh, at least for those people, it was at a reasonable level of attainment. See, I want to... Okay, I'd hope to uh, cover eating meditation today in, in great thoroughness, but I think we'll have to do that um, in a couple of days because there isn't enough time. To, the context within which uh, I'd like to talk about the e eating meditation is important, and so I'm laying the groundwork for it now. Um, <clears throat> and so next time we'll, we'll uh, definitely talk about that, and if time, perhaps uh, death, or the fact that the body has to die. <clears throat> At any rate, what I'm suggesting is that with a little care, this practice can not only, not only yield rather profound insights, regarding uh, notions like impermanence, like ownership or 
personal identity. What is a person? And how is the body, which is often used as a platform upon which the self is erected, what is that? And as well, it's not at the, needn't be at the expense of just very ordinary common sense observation as to how to care for the body and for that to even be enjoyable, the caring of it. And it doesn't have to be taken an unusual amount of our time and it enhances the practice. Now, for some people, that's the only way you can get them to do these things. If you say, well, it'll help your practice. And say, it, it will? Will it help my meditation? Oh, yeah, definitely. Will I get to the first stage? No question about it. Then there might be more motivation. Let me uh, end this, with, um, this, this morning with a, um, a personal experience, a particular teacher that I work with who I feel set me straight. And it's been really helpful. Some years ago, almost 20 to be exact, uh, I had the good fortune of meeting a yogi by the name of uh, Shivananda Saraswati. He was a man, uh, at that time he was 86 years old, and he was traveling around the United States by Greyhound bus uh, to visit his disciples. He had four. This was before the age of the superstars, when uh, lamas and uh, Zen masters and Sayadors and all are flown around and, you know, uh, all over the place. There was hardly anyone doing it. And he had a correspondence with four of his students for something like 15 years. They had never met him, but they were writing to him in India, and he had, they were carrying on a correspondence yoga course. And finally, they all four got up the money and sent it to him so that they, he could come to the United States. And they all lived in different... One lived in Brooklyn, one lived in Montana, one lived in Canada, and I've forgotten where the fourth one lives. Not important. And so I met him in Canada, at an ashram in Canada. And what I learned from him, first of all, I, uh, we formed a, a very nice connection and we traveled together for a long time. He was quite amazing. At 86, uh, fresh as a daisy, you know, traveling on the Greyhound bus sometimes uh, overnight. His way of life, he was very much of a contemplative, and he would get up at 3.30 or sometimes 2.30 or 4 in the morning, and he would just pop up out of bed and just go right into sitting. He wouldn't even wash. He would just sit up in his bed. And I had to do everything he did because that was the agreement. And he would sometimes be in that posture before doing anything else for hours. Uh, and he would do some physical things. At 86, he was still doing the headstand, but not a huge amount. He had a lot of energy. He was very much involved in meditation. and. I, of course, one of the first things I learned is a certain amount of reasonable care with diet. I wouldn't say that it, was, it was a fetish for him, but there was a certain amount of care about uh, the way he took care of his body. And at one point, he told me something which has stayed with me all these years. And he said that he, just, he said that in his own case, some of the deepest spiritual insight had, insights had come after the age of 65. He said that. Uh, if you take reasonable care of the body, you can have a relatively painless old age. Now, he's not giving, he's not idealizing a not kind of a, a Hollywood hatha yoga, which is portrayed sometimes, you know, sort of it's as if you're never going to die, or the body beautiful. It's not that. He was not trying to even present himself as a young man. He was really just himself. And there's no question that there's a limit to the control that we have over this. You can do all the things that are being suggested here, take care of your body, eat properly, do exercises and all the rest, 
and have an automobile accident or for all kinds of reasons, perhaps karma, the body breaks down. So we don't have, we really don't have control over it. I mean, I, I want to make sure you don't think that I think that if I do all these things, I'll just have it totally uh, together, because I know that's not so. A lot, a lot of it is out of our control, but there are some ways in which we can influence our own karma, just as we're doing it now, by coming to this retreat. And what he said is, if you take a certain amount of care of the body, just eat reasonably, give the body a reasonable amount of exercise, see to it that the breath is adequate, that uh, water is good, get enough sleep, not too much, not too little, and a few things like that. He said you can have a relatively painless old age. So he's, a, he's a understanding that, that aging is painful and that, that perhaps the body begins to disintegrate, but relatively. And what he said was, at that age, many desires fall away anyway. Now, of course, he was also a, a, a deep contemplative, but he felt that uh, it's independent of that or on top of that, many desires fall away anyway. And if the body is in reasonable health and has a reasonable amount of energy at its disposal, that the, the spiritual life could really flourish. At, at any rate, he told me about his, that it did. And of course, he encouraged me to do that. So it's a balanced approach. It's understanding that uh, in coming to terms with this body, there's no question that it's quite fragile, that it's, uh, an, an, when, we, when it will die is unknown, out of our control, yet it's certain that all these things will happen. We frequently get sick. Many things are, out, are not un, under our control. And it's very helpful if we can begin to develop a balanced view of the body and not totally identify with it, not identify with it as either I or mine, but rather see it as a body and uh, come to some kind of a reasonable and very balanced approach basically to living, which I think definitely is in tune with what we're trying to do here. There have been other models for it. Krishnamurti, who some of you know of, and whose teaching in some ways is very similar to what we do, used an image. He said the, uh, the body, although you're not the body, he said the body is it's a little bit like if you're in the cavalry. Let's say you're, uh, uh, you're a soldier and you're, uh, you're, you, fi- you do your fighting on your horse. Well, then, although you're not your horse, you better take very good care of that horse because your life may depend on it. So you feed it, you give it adequate rest, and even though there is a separate, there's a separation, there's a difference, nonetheless, your fate is very much intertwined with this animal, with the horse. And it's something like that. Now, you, one can learn to care for the body in a way that is not medicinal. I think that some of what keeps many of the uh, yogis who come through here and many of the ones that I meet elsewhere, and it's not limited to Buddhism, I've seen it very much in uh, uh, Vedantins, it's a uh, somewhat more intellectual version, another kind of practice, an aspect of Hinduism, is that when you bring this up, people will say, oh, will this be good for a particular condition? Tell me what to do. Tell me what to take, how often I should take it, and then I'll do it, and of course I hope that I'll, be, I'll have a lot of energy and feel good and be youthful and not get sick so much. But the attitude is medicinal. There's no joy in it. It's, it doesn't come out of understanding. And I personally don't have a whole lot of faith for any changes that don't come out of understanding. If you're just changing it because of somebody else's uh, authority, or they've told you what's good for you, then maybe that launches you. 
But if it doesn't come out of your own examination, and I, this is what I'd like to get into when we move to uh, the eating meditation, ways in which we can examine the body as we eat and see the consequences. See if it's really true that there is quite a relationship between how much we eat, the quality of what we eat, and the kinds of awareness that we have at our disposal, the kinds of energy, whether our mind is clear or agitated or dull or fresh. And also to see if it's so that if we have a total identification of the body, I am the body, that we suffer enormously. As we start to age, we go through, we just exhaust ourselves trying to pretend that we're younger. You know, some of it is a very painful sight that uh, you can see if you go to Florida. My parents live in a retirement community. I don't know what to call it, because it's not, not so communal. <laughs> Uh, where the average age is about 70, going on 12. In other words, everyone is trying to uh, take on all the most youthful styles of clothing and dance and activities, and it's very painful to watch. If they would only just age gracefully and just be happy, uh, as the, in other words, there are different joys that are possible at different stages of life. And so people are just working so hard to deny the fact that people are dying almost every day there and that they can't, you know, shuffleboard all around and tennis and, and no one's using it and swimming pools and no one's in the pool, etc. It's uh, coming to terms with that, that kind of wisdom. Can we do it now at whatever age we are through understanding, through understanding that if we totally identify with a fixate on the body as being a certain way, a certain strength, a certain physical appearance, a certain attractiveness, a certain energy level. We're bound to suffer greatly. And so it's finding some way to use the practice to free ourselves from attachment and the suffering that usually accompanies attachment. Okay, so we'll continue this... um, Thursday? Thursday. Let's continue where we left off. We were talking about coming to terms with the body, if you remember. And it was suggested that there's a lot of attachment to this body. Uh, Sometimes that can be characterized as in the words, I am the body, that is, the identification is so thorough that anything having to do with the shape, color, size, age, weight, etc., of the body, strength, health, uh, comes to be taken as us and has implications for our sense of well-being, of how we are. Or, it's, or the somewhat less tight is a possessive notion. This is my body. It's not quite as close. My arms. This is my hand. My hair. And if you recall what was mentioned, there's a tremendous amount of attachment, vanity, uh, concern for the body. Without going over all of that again, the uh, particular sutra that we talked about, the sutra on arousing 
mindfulness has a whole section on the body, and the main thrust is to begin to see the body uh, from the point of view of this sutra in its true nature, that is, its ultimately true nature, as an impermanent phenomenon. And if we get attached to something that is constantly changing, uh, it's no wonder that we experience a lot of pain, because the two don't go together. Something keeps changing, and yet our responses are trying to maintain a certain fixity to hold things, to stabilize them. And so we mentioned a few exercises that were used to loosen this attachment, some of which, maybe all of which, are not probably not appropriate for us, either because of the modern world, if you recall the, what I'm referring to as the um, contemplating the different parts of the body, the foulness of the different parts of the body, and not too many people are attracted to that exercise. But I wasn't uh, trying to uh, suggest that we do the exercise so much as to uh, convey one approach to helping people loosen that attachment to the body. And sometimes it's, for example, um, uh, in retreats, if people have had very strong uh, sexual fixations, teachers have told them, uh, to contemplate, let's say, not your body, but the body of the person you have the fixation on in this way, and that loosens the attachment. If you start to see your loved one as a bag of urine, feces, pus, mucus, synovial fluid, somehow it does something to the... Vimalo's okay. feeling is that that... Um, particular contemplation, and there's another one very much like it, to contemplate food in the same way. Not in a very beautiful way, when you look at food and kind of gourmet or natural food, approach to food, but seeing, seeing food for what it becomes within a split second almost, as you start to chew it, and as it starts to be processed in the body and then eventually evacuated. And uh, probably, or there's a good chance that the teaching was mainly for, uh, for monks, who had made a commitment to a certain style of life and were intent on a very fast breakthrough, spiritual breakthrough in this lifetime, and needed all the help they could get in terms of freeing themselves from the body. In other words, celibacy, uh, minimal eating, and so forth. So that it may not be appropriate to us, but just to, to clear that up, it's not, I'm not suggesting that it is. And what we, what we were moving towards was uh, a way of relating to the body or coming to terms with it, which honors both the fact that it is impermanent, which is to say that we die, that it changes along the way towards death, and that these features of the body uh, need to be acknowledged in a, in a very deep way because they profoundly affect our life, whether we contemplate them or not. And caring for the body, so that even though this body is uh, in the process of aging and its structure is changing, uh, eventually it becoming uh, sick and dying, it doesn't follow, and even if your contemplation is on that a lot, and we'll get to death in the next, possibly today, but I doubt it, it doesn't follow that because of that we have to throw up our hands and uh, feel, well, it's all hopeless, we're going to die anyway, so why care about how we feed it or exercise it or give it adequate sleep or breath or water. 
who cares? It's going to die. It's impermanent. And we were learning that from the practice and we see it, even if you don't meditate. And that could be one extreme response. And then the other way, which is the kind of bodily know-how, drawing upon bodily wisdom, which we all have, uh, unless we, it atrophies because we don't use it or because we uh, stuff concepts, superimpose concepts on top of the body, the body sensitivity. And all the many forms of training that are available today in certain areas, of, certainly of this country, uh, to enhance uh, sensitivity to the, to the body, understanding of diet and care of the body. And what I was trying to suggest last time is that they're, they're not uh, in conflict. They don't have to be in conflict. Both are part of just intelligent living. And uh, a reasonable care of the body contributes to having the kind of energy and mind states that actually make the practice that support our Dharma practice. What I was suggesting is that sometimes uh, if a mind becomes tremendously preoccupied with, let's say, the ultimate meanings of the body, that it's impermanent, there can be a tendency to observe the body as a field to demonstrate this almost exclusively. And people can spend years observing the body and not really understand how to use their own body. I've seen it not only in Vipassana, but in many spiritual traditions where the mind, for example, is taken to be so important, which it is. And so the challenge, as I see it, is can we learn how to both examine the body and in a very profound way contemplate its ultimate nature, which is sometimes called its true nature, and at the same time, uh, intelligently and in a reasonable way, care for the body so that we don't, it's not necessary to make more suffering than we already have. And from a spiritual point of view, that we have adequate energy to carry out all of these lovely practices that we're learning. Um, crucial here is the notion of identification, you know, of identifying with the body, attachment, letting go, phrases that you've been hearing uh, during this retreat. And I just want to make sure that everyone understands what it means. And sometimes it's easier to convey identification when you take the example away from your own body because it's so taken for granted. We're so in it. Or it's notions of self are so built up on this foundation of, a body, of the physical body. Take a simple notion of a car. I saw this happen once. Uh, someone had just finished polishing their car and was standing not too far away from it, and someone else came and just leaned against it. And it eventually became a fist fight over the car. And what came out of it was the incredible uh, identification that the person had with their own car. You see that sometimes with even with minor uh, things that go on with cars. And it even is expressed in the language. You know, I'm out of gas, you know, or my transmission is out. <laughs> It's not true. Your car is out of gas. <laughs> now, I realize that some of that is just for economy, uh, you know, verbal economy. But uh, cars get identified with in a very strong way, and then it's almost as if it's an extension of our body, or the school that you go to, or the particular meditation practice that you have, or the country that you come from. 
So we apparently we identify with things external to ourselves and it gives us energy. Unless somebody tells us that there's a better model car, then suddenly there's a drop in energy. And so we're going up and down, a kind of emotional stock market on these things. And it's that, it's that that I was getting at. Um, so can we come to uh, a way of relating to the body, and I would say that the only way that I know of is through awareness, through coming to know it, so that it's honored, it's cared for, and there's a relationship of non-attachment and intelligent use of the body. It even can be fun on the way. In other words, there's a lot of learning that, can go, that has to go on, otherwise you won't know how to use the body. For example, questions like, which come up on retreats, how much should I eat or how much should I sleep? I think each person has to find that out. You have to find it out for yourself. Any, any mechanical law, let's say a certain quantity or a certain fixed number of hours, would be uh, imposing a mental, a mental construction on top of the body. And in that sense, uh, that contributes to the atrophying that I was talking about of bodily wisdom, which we all have to begin with. And so part of practice can be using this mindfulness and observation that we're uh, cultivating day in and day out to start to examine by watching, by paying attention, how much sleep do you need, really need, so that it is not too much and it's not too little. How much food do you need so it's not too much and it's not too little? What food? Etc. So one thing I thought I would do today um, is go through an, uh, a guide, a kind of some guidelines for the for eating meditation, contemplative eating, in more detail than we have done on the retreat so far, where you've been encouraged to be wakeful while eating. What I'd like to do is to go through it in a rather detailed way, from time to time, pointing out. Uh, the kind of awareness that is more in the sphere of bodily know-how, or as if the goal is to care for the body, then finding out what kinds of foods, what qualities and amounts of food contribute, contribute to that end. But also learning some very deep and profound dharmic themes. Or as, um, doctrinal notions that can be observed in eating. Eating is a very highly charged and rich event for most of us. For most of us, food is not a neutral event. And so a tremendous amount can be learned around this simple process, and you have a chance to do it. Uh, you know, we eat three times a day here. I don't know if this will be incentive. I've heard that, it, this is in one of the commentary that I read, that uh, among the ancients there was a monastery in Sri Lanka where eating meditation, meditation was featured, it was really emphasized a lot, and many people attained enlightenment while eating. So I don't know if that will provide sufficient incentive, but it's a try. If they do it more than three times a day? I don't know. Vimal <laughs> <laughs> was at that monastery in a past lifetime. So let's begin, uh, let's say at the beginning, uh, if you could just imaginatively go through, let's say the next meal that you're going to be doing, and I would suggest that you eat it somewhat like this and use as many of the meals that remain in, the, in, in this way. 
you have plenty of time here. Step number one, let's say we arrive in a dining room and you're, we're filing into the dining room, we're starting to walk towards the, li- towards the line, to form the line. You haven't seen what the meal is today, but you know already the mind starts. It wants to know what is the meal going to be. And so step number one is become very, very sensitive to what we bring to the meal before we've even seen it. What is the state of the body and the mind? If there's hunger, let's say if we discover that there's hunger, where is it? Is it in the tongue? Is it in the belly? Is it just in the mind? If we look around for the hunger, is there no place that it can be found? But it's simply the uh, mind is hungry to eat something. Uh, What's the the mood that we're bringing to eating? Now, some of this uh, can be much more important when you go home. Here you don't have control over things. You have to eat uh, what is offered and when it's offered. But when it's more under your control, a very interesting area to explore is the particular moods that we have and then how we handle them, how we manage them in terms of food. In other words, using food at times to compensate for what hasn't happened to us that we want to happen in life. And that whole rich exchange between food and our sense of well-being. So that you have to be really sensitive to, to uh, your state just before eating and seeing what that does, where it directs you to. And at, at home there are more options, so you can learn a lot there. And here you begin to, to do that. And then as we make our way to the line, the learning continues. As you see the food, let's say there's an aroma. The aroma, uh, there's contact of the aroma with the nose. And then almost instantaneously, it seems as if it's the same, it's very, very rapid, there's a a response to that aroma, a feeling, uh, of either it's desirable or pleasant or unpleasant, or it's neutral. If it's pleasant, watch this, see if it's true. The Buddha said this is true. See if it is, test it. If if let's say, just on on the aroma, but also it would be clearly true for taste, color, etc. The aroma makes contact with the nostrils. There's what we call a smell. And it may be a pleasant feeling. Let's say it's some food that's recognizable and that you like. And then notice the mind starting to want it. See what happens. In other words, by and large, there's a general tendency that is if it's pleasant, if the sensation is pleasant, if the feeling is pleasant, the mind will want it. And if it's unpleasant, the mind won't want it. And if it's neutral, perhaps the mind tends to space out and occupy itself with something else, like wishing it were home where it could eat what it it can get on its own. And then if this, what is often referred to as craving, follows, let's say, the pleasant association to the aroma, it's not it won't be far behind that, that perhaps there's a holding on and an attachment to it, which may manifest as you get the food. Okay, so you start to move through the line. And in general, this is just an application of our practice. I don't think I'll be saying anything new at all. But the detail is to show you the possibilities, which perhaps you haven't been taking advantage of, just as with the breath. 
You're beginning to see how subtle the breath is, how much can really be learned. And the spirit of learning is is central to all of this. You might start to uh, notice people moving through the line and seeing how this one takes too much food and they're not a good yogi and that one is not taking enough or noticing that one takes very little food playing some game because then they go and finish it and they only come back for another extra portion. But at least for a time being they feel as if they're a good yogi, not overeating. And then, of course, it comes to your turn. You get to the big pot with the ladle. And then there's how much do you take? What determines that? In other words, stay wakeful as that whole process begins. You have a few moments because there are people in back of you. You can't take forever. But something happens and you take a certain amount of that substance that's there. And you might say that the eating meditation is really becoming aware of uh, substances and a whole bunch of ideas and feelings around these substances. That's all that's there. There's a pile of stuff or fluid and then ideas around about them which come out of us in our mind. And so one way or another we take a certain amount. Is that determined mechanically? Does it have anything to do with the way you're feeling, with the temperature? If it's very cold out, are you taking something that's more warm? Or is that irrelevant? Are you taking a certain fixed amount by a predetermined, uh, you've fixed on a pattern? Or or does the amount fluctuate according to your sensed need of of your body at that particular moment? And so you, let's say, move through the line and uh, come back to the table with what you have. And then sit and just pause for a few moments. Perhaps an expression of gratitude for having food. Many people on the planet don't. And before you begin to eat, now you have the food. Check again the body, check the mind, and see what we're bringing to the, to the food. Sometimes you'll see uh, the body is in position, what you might call, to augment the devouring mind. You know, it's a kind of very primitive approach to eating, which our forebearers have had and which we still have to some degree. You may be almost ready to pounce on it. Uh, all kinds of bodily posture associated with the eating. And then look at the food. Just look at it for a few moments. See how much you have, how much you've decided to take, the quantity and how you've arranged it. And then as you begin to eat, experience the arm, let's say, lowering itself, the sensations in the arm, the coming up with the food. See what happens to your posture as you eat. For example, I remember the first time I did this some years ago, uh, I, after a while, noticed that I was eating sort of bent over like this. In other words, I would go lower myself down to get the food, but I would never come up. In other words, I would stay down to eat the food, closer to the food to get the next portion and the next one and the next. <laughs> but at a certain point, be, uh, because of being encouraged to pay attention, uh, that may have served in some way to please the mind, or maybe an old was obviously an old habit pattern. But with awareness, you could feel the organs in the body, because there was this uh, extreme bending over, were scrunched together, pressed together. It was very uncomfortable. Now, apparently, I'd been able to do that for years. In other words, the taste becomes so predominant that we negate the other signals that are coming from the body. And this is a very important notion, body signals. 
Every time we put a substance into our mouth, and as we chew it, and as it goes down, the body gives off signals, some of them very strong, some of them very faint. The signals have to do, can be in terms of temperature, or pressure, or the shift of weight, movement. But the body starts to tell us uh, how it's experiencing what is happening. And sometimes you can experience, especially the dominant signals, as being disruptive or harmonious. Even with one bite, it may be a very subtle feeling of well-being or and buoyancy or a heaviness and a lethargy. Even that, at that point in the meal sometimes, and it's very subtle. Okay, so uh, we've brought some food up. The whole process being done consciously, I'm slowing it down quite a bit. And I would suggest that you slow it down. At least some meals, and particularly this first one, this next lunch, I think it would be very helpful if you slow it down. Okay. So then you bring awareness uh, to the food. You, you put the food in your mouth, perhaps taste it before you start to chew. And then you start to chew, and then you watch to see what happens. In other words, you put the food in your mouth, you start to chew, and then watch, see what happens. Because it can be quite interesting. There's a whole bunch of sensations that are aroused in the mouth as you start to chew. And if you pay attention, you'll see that uh, at least two things are going on. One, there's the pulverizing of the food, which uses the teeth. And the other, there's the taste. And some people who, are, who say they love to eat, and by all evidence do love to eat, when they start to examine in this process, they'll find that the main thing that they enjoy is not really so much the taste as the uh, pulverizing the food. It's a kind of an aggre- a release of aggression. But really, it's very primitive. And other people uh, use very little force. In other words, they're using first kind of using tremendous force. And it's part of why perhaps a lot is eaten, is that that gets satisfied, that aggressive need gets satisfied. And other people are primarily, I mean, everyone has to pulverize food. Other people are primarily tasting it, very delicate tastes, not so much uh, pleasure coming from the breaking down of the food. But in any case, if you pay attention, you'll start to see that there's a rich universe of sensations going on in the mouth. And if you can be alive to those sensations, in a way, if you start to eat those sensations, what some people have discovered is that they need to eat less food. This may have some appeal to, to some of you. That is, uh, as you really taste what you're eating, you may need to eat less because it's much more fulfilling to really taste it. And you may, know, uh, may notice that you've been eating a lot without tasting it. So those sensations are extremely important. And there'll be a, a variety of kinds, temperature and sweet and hot, salty, etc. And then the food starts to go down. And you may start to experience that. Again, being really alert to these signals, body signals. It's very important. The body has a certain wisdom. Clearly, it's not as fully developed as it might be because we haven't been, unless you have, most of us have not been developing it, listening to it. Rather, we've been listening to plans in the head. This person's diet or that person's diet or what our parents taught us. And so it's lodged in the head and we superimpose a, a plan which has, doesn't have anything necessarily to do 
with the body, the intelligence of the body, and each one of us has a different body, different responses. And so you start to chew. Another thing I learned when I first started doing it is um, I started to chew some food, and I don't remember what it was. It was very good, and I just was into it for a few chews, and I was already reaching for more of what I already had. So now we start entering into real Dharma themes of greed, desire, or as the mind really enjoyed what it had in, in its mouth, and it was already reaching to get some more of what it already had. It was waiting. It could, have, it could have it in a nice orderly sequence, but it couldn't wait for that. And so these are some of the things that can get learned. Uh, again, to repeat this thing with sensations, some foods will taste better, or there will be pleasurable feelings, some neutral and some not so pleasurable. And notice what the mind does around that. Notice what the mind, in other words, there's the, the feelings and perhaps cravings that are uh, stimulated by a pleasant taste, and then a holding on or attachment, which may show itself in terms of how much we take. It may show itself with going back for seconds. It may show itself with uh, almost a depression at the end of the meal, because the meal has to come to an end. Then we get into another Dharma theme. Now around here, for those of you who have done the three-month retreat, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know if it's going on on this retreat. There's a kind of a practice or a tradition that has sprung up of stashing. Do you know what I mean? In other words, uh, because you don't have control when we're here, we have to eat what's given to us. Now and then, very often in fact, there's good food at each meal. And so you eat some of that meal and then you save some of it. You take more than you need and you stash it in a variety of containers on the shelves that, l- that line the dining room. And on the three-month retreat, it looks like a store 24, you know, or a supermarket. <laughs> and, everyone, and some people have a really a very rich display of goods. I'm not exaggerating, for those of you who... Are... Now, let's understand that for the moment, not in a harsh way, but understand it in terms of practice. If you remember, it was suggested last time that it's possible through awareness to, in, to have joy or enjoyment in life without attachment. So it's not, the, the answer is not necessarily to not eat or to eat very little or to not enjoy food. The real issue is the attachment. Similarly with sex and with money, the problem isn't in those energies. It's that we don't know how to use them. So we either, uh, we either destroy ourselves with too much sex, or not enough sex, or too much money, or not enough money, or too much power, or not enough power, or too much food, or not enough food. But it's a rare person who can learn how to use these beautiful energies. They're there to be used. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with them. And so the art of non-attachment was suggested last time as being very important and central in this practice. That means if we have something in life, let's say companionship, or a good meal, or a beautiful day, or anything that's, that's nice, we can enjoy it if we can just enjoy it, and when it's over, we can let it go. Now, that's not something that's going to happen naturally. We need to apply the practice. So the practice is to enjoy things fully while you have them. And when they're over, learning the art of acknowledging what's true is that it is over. Now, when we take, let's say, a lot of food and we stash it, I'm using it as an example, 
we have a choice. We could practice, let's say, on this retreat. If you're a stasher, I don't know if you are or not, but this is more general for IMS community, since it's on tape. (laughs) If you're a stasher, what you're reinforcing is that whole idea of uh, perhaps giving the meal immortality, you know, through putting it on the shelf, rather than developing this capacity to end things. In other words, to fully enjoy the meal and then learn how to just end them. And then move on to the next activity and fully enter into that. And the next activity and fully enter into that. It's a very different way of living. It's a a living that's not based uh, so much on uh, deficiency, but more on trust that uh, each situation can be adequate. Okay, and this is what I'm suggesting because it has real strong implications for how to relate to the body so that we can relate to the body in a sane way. And the non-attachment seems to be important for that. Okay, so that we're going through the meal and I think we've, I think we've just had one bite so far. And so we keep doing that. Now, while you're eating, it's very important to be able to tell the difference between the body and the mind. In the particular sutra on arousing mindfulness that, that uh, was referred to last time, they use a phrase called observing the body in the body. Observing the body in the body. And in a sense, there are two bodies. There's the body-body, which are just the literal sensations that are happening. And there's the mind-body, which could be body-image. These are ideas that come up about the body, or pictures about the shape of the body, but it isn't the body-body. It's a mind-body. If you can tell the difference, it's a major step. There's an insight into the difference between mind and body. This is body, this is mind. the just pure sensations that come with eating the meal is, is the body in the body. But often other things come up, or as the mind has reactions, concepts, and colors what we're eating. And if we can't separate it, then of course it's blended together as one thing. Let me give you an example. Some years ago, uh, there was a person doing this kind of training and uh, did this exercise for quite a while of eating meditation, did it with uh, real care. And at a certain point, came in, uh, was just, it was hilarious. She just uncontrolled laughter. What she noticed was that she'd been eating a kind of French cheese for 10 years, and that she never really liked the taste of it, but she'd been eating it anyway. And so then, through a process of just talking it out, It turns out that what seems to have happened is that during her time, when she was going to college, things French were in. You had a French art, French philosophy, French food. Now it's normal. Croissants are all over the place, you know. I think McDonald's has croissants. But in those days, it was something very special. And you, of course, your junior year abroad, you'd have to study in Paris. And the way it is now with Oriental things, it was then with French things. And so she was part of that. And so she'd been eating that concept for 10 years. But you can see how sometimes the mental uh, process can be so powerful that it dominates the actual physical process. But 
just taking this simple exercise, she was able to dissociate that I really don't like the actual taste of this, but I like what it feels like to think that I'm eating something French. In other words, the, the mind feels good. And the body's saying, I don't like it, I don't like it, I don't like it. Be quiet, it's French. And so now we've moved into new forms of tyranny with tofu and seaweed and other things that perhaps some of you are eating and hating it, you know, but have read about all these programs of how it's good for you and spiritual and neutralizes this and all, you know, detoxifies you, I don't know. Okay, so that, that's an extreme, let's say, form of it. So it's real training in gaining insight into the difference between mind and body, which is very helpful. You know, in terms of, let's say, the discussions on pain that comes up. It comes up all the time. So to be able to learn to tell that that difference. Okay, so if the meal is now starting to finish up. Now, the kinds of things that can be learned all along are uh, the ways in which sensations arise and the way in which we grab onto them and hold onto them. Uh, going back for seconds. I'm not telling you not to, I don't, I'm not, and I'm not promoting any particular diet, vegetarian or eating meat. What is being emphasized here is the learning. What Vimal was talking about the other day, the willingness to learn, is to learn how you eat, both from the point of view of care of the body and what it can reveal to us about the way our mind works. Notions of attachment, unrealistic ideas about what the body is, who's eating, what it is that we're eating, what it is that makes us happy, or what can make us happy. So it's both a Dharma project as well as a very practical way of staying a bit healthy and hopefully enjoying the meal in the mean, you know, uh, on the way. It's not to make it so complex that we don't enjoy the meal. Okay, so at a certain point, uh, let's say we run out of food. And here, of course, these issues do come up quite a bit as to whether to get more food, whether to go back. And perhaps the, the body will say it's had enough. It's not uncommon for the body to say that. And the mind may disagree. The mind may overrule it. And perhaps a civil war breaks out at that point. What I would suggest is, at that point, become very quiet and just, you can even close your eyes and just allow that war to rage in full fury. Just hear the body and the mind struggling, or two parts of the mind, you know, your dietary, new dietary program that you vowed to uphold, saying one thing, and then some other incredible craving, saying something else, and let it happen. Observe it with, with care and even love. Because it's all us, it's our life process unfolding. And how you resolve it is up to you, who knows? At a certain point, however you resolve it, just do it, you know, probably go and get that extra portion. And then come back and eat it. And so let's say that now the meal is over. The meal is over, but the meditation, the contemplation of eating is not over. It can be very useful in ways like the following. Sometimes uh, that civil war gets resolved in favor of craving or the mind, rather than the actual needs of the body. And then there's a tremendous guilt reaction. In other words, we do it, we finish it, and then we feel terrible. There I go, I did it again. You know, just 
overindulge myself, and then we flagellate ourselves for hours sometimes. That can be much worse than the overeating. And that's part of the practice, to see that kind of uh, aggression turns, turn towards ourselves in whatever form. That requires great sensitivity, staying alert, staying present, and observing that dynamic, because perhaps for some of us we go through it many, many times. The struggle, not eating, saying we shouldn't eat it, eating it, and then punishing ourselves for it, over and over and over again. And it's through the observation of it, and also the willingness to learn, because what you're going to begin to see is the consequences of these choices. For example, I was emphasizing the body signals as you eat, because the body signals convey messages from the body about what is uh, helpful for the body and what isn't, independent of taste. Something could taste good and not be received by the body very well. Now, if you can begin to learn about that, in other words, this cause and effect relationship, that just in this instance using food, you're beginning to learn a major thing in this practice, which is how we can become self-reliant and liberate ourselves from our own limitations. And part of the power that does that is through understanding, not through following a dogma. It's not that the Buddha said, do this, and so we'll do it, and then it'll be all right. Or this teacher said, uh, do this, and then it'll be all right. That doesn't have very much power. When the teacher is present, perhaps we do it. But all too soon, we're on our own again. But understanding can have tremendous momentum and power. In other words, when you really see for yourself, and that has to be increasingly deep, grasping the, the fact, the fact of impermanence, for example, that a meal has to end, and that if you're attached to it, you're going to suffer. And watch that process go. Don't try to stamp it out. Perhaps notice how you try to prolong the meal because you don't want to get into whatever the next activity is. This is all self-knowledge, and the food, in a sense, is incidental. It's what's helping us understand ourselves. Okay, so the meal is over. And the meditation continues in the following way. Again, it's this cause and effect. See if this is true. Within a certain period after the meal, and sometimes it's not that long, you can begin to see that there's a relationship between what we eat, or is the quantity of, of what we eat, and the quality of what we eat, and then the kind of consciousness that has a greater likelihood of arising. If we eat certain foods and certain amounts of these foods, we may find the, the mind inclining more towards dullness or towards being agitated. If we eat uh, less food or certain kinds of food, we may find the mind very fresh, buoyant, alert, not tired, not sleepy. And of course you have a tremendous laboratory right here in this retreat. If you're feeling tired and sleepy after a meal, there's a very good chance that you're, you're overeating. By your body standards, not by any expert standards or any dietary program. That means a disproportionate amount of your blood is being used to digest the food and you don't have enough for the brain. Now, then the next step is, let's say, at first is identifying that, that p- pattern, seeing it enough times, and probably all of us in this room have already done that, even before we've come here. 
we have some kind of intuitive sense that certain foods do things to us, and perhaps we keep doing it anyway. If you come to value awareness very much, or if you come to value the essence of this practice, to see what a, a precious thing it is, that is, it really has to do with the quality of our life. When we're awake, we're more alive. And so the degree to which we value our life has a great deal to do with this awareness that is being talked about all the time. If that truly comes to be valued by us, I don't mean as an ideology, but we understand that in a sense it's the most valuable thing we have. More valuable than our possessions and our bank account. Because with awareness, in a sense, all things are possible. We can handle whatever comes up in life. If we really see the importance of that, then the incentive to learn about the relationship between, let's say, what we eat and the consequences of that eating comes out of understanding, not out of an ideology that's enforced by an authority, even your own authority. It's a natural process, and it's a joyful one. Now, I'm not trying to make this such a tight thing and so that no one eats any junk food or you never overeat. I mean, I do. But over the years, there's been a gradual, um, and for me, because I know what my habits were earlier, they were much worse than what you see now. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite remarkable as to how much you can uh, improve the quality of your life by this kind of understanding. Now, I'm emphasizing it not so much as, as to make a specialist in eating, but that is a very important activity in life. It's just a general principle of this practice. So that whatever it is that you're interested in, learning, or it's the observation, the willingness to, to look and to listen, and the art of learning from what we see and from what we hear and touch and smell, and then for us to live our understanding, or is to carry out, to enact what we understand, rather than to betray it, which we often do. We often will understand, you all know what I just said, don't we all know that about food? My God, probably everyone in this room knows it. But we betray that understanding time and time again. Now, I'm not trying to resurrect or raise some other kind of austere moral principle. You shouldn't betray your understanding. It's rather that if that's what's happening and that's contributing to, uh, let's say, making life less fulfilling, then examine it. Investigate that. Investigate why we do things that are not in our own best interest. And I'm only talking about food now. You know, it clearly applies to everything else. Relationships, choice of work, where to live, friendships, how we practice meditation, everything. Uh, Let me read you a few quotes to finish this that come from the uh, yoga tradition. Maybe this will be encouraging to some of us. This is from the Bhagavad Gita. It says, Yoga, and here yoga doesn't mean simply hatha yoga. It means, let's say, unity, or what we're calling meditation. Yoga becomes the destroyer of pain for him who is moderate in eating. And again from the Gita. Verily, yoga is not possible for him who eats too much, him or her who eats too much, nor for him or her who does not who eats too little, in other words, who fasts too much, or undereats, because the body has needs. And finally, 
from a very great yogi called Shankara, whose name was Shankara. Uh, he says, whatever food, and this is really, I think, the essence of what I've been trying to say, whatever food is suited to oneself, that protects, it injures not. A greater quantity injures, and a smaller quantity protects not. So we have to find out what foods are beneficial for us and to not eat too much of it or too little of it. And that requires attention, sensitivity, and learning. 